Section 1 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amy Dunkelberger. A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. Section 1 The stuffy drawing rooms were full of people. Some of the group realized the stuffiness and would have liked more air. Some of them were too much overawed to mind an atmosphere that knew how to live with ancestral mahogany. There were those who averted their gaze from the black walnut whatnot. There were those who ached with desire of its beauty. There were young eyes that could have appraised to a penny the big royal Bokhara rug in the front room, and watery eyes behind glasses that knew just how much work had gone into the complicated rag carpet before the fire in the room beyond. There was Bessie John, dressed in well-cut, much-worn tweed, prettily intent on ivory chessmen from the summer palace, and old Miss Bean, whose gloveless hands showed the stabs of a thousand relentless needles. Little Julie Fort dangled a German silver vanity case from her bare left hand and hid her paint-smudged right in a cheap fitch muff. Next her sat Walter Levin, gaunt, correct, threadbare, with time-stiffened figure and time-eroded face. Young Jim Huntingdon sprawled uncomfortably on the gilt, Louis says chair, to which fate had unkindly led him. Bleached hair and tan-faced recorded the onslaught of tropic suns and of winds that acknowledged no human responsibilities. Now and then he threw up his head and snuffed the air uncomfortably, like an animal, panting a little as he sprawled. And others, and yet others, in every variety of attitude filling the two great rooms, surging into corners, pressing hard against door-jams, now, at last, the rooms were full. For five minutes, the shadowy butler had not introduced a new member to the group. There was little talk, for of this large number of people, many found themselves alone among strangers. Even those known to each other were suspicious and silent, for no one knew why he had been summoned. Eager, proud, annoyed, miserable, Many qualities of facial expression were there, and all slightly sharpened by resentment. No one would have minded meeting alone the rich hostess who had not yet appeared, but this unexplained crowd, like a prayer meeting or a table d'hote, was maddening. It savored of sermons or of some abominable charity. Still, they had all responded to the summons, and they waited unprotesting for they were all poor. Sometimes two glances crossed like swords, forestalling an insult, but no one got up and went out. The same fact chained them all to their places, and each tried not to realize that this was so. Their relations to Miss Wheaton differed widely. Some had exploited her, and some had really loved her, but nothing in the past of any of them, and this feeling was everywhere like the stuffy air, justified this ruthless association of him with others. These people, while they waited for Miss Wheaton, bristled with individualism. 
they were half a hundred special cases, having nothing in common with their fellow guests but the perfectly fortuitous and undeserved circumstance of poverty. There were those there who could, with contentment, have made a quick way to the door, distributing kicks as they went. But no one stirred. Two men, one of them Bessie John's husband, marooned together on a Sheraton bench between the wall and a door, looked at each other suddenly, an identical phrase in the eyes of each. If one could only smoke! But neither uttered a word. Bessie John gave herself up to futile scorn of a rich woman whose drawing-rooms were furnished as heterogeneously as the ark was peopled. But she showed her scorn only in her smile, which she directed, with dishonest explicitness, at old Miss Bean. Fortunately, Miss Bean's own eyes were resting, fascinated, on Jim Huntington. She had a furtive hope that this young giant, whom she did not know, might break the gilt chair on which he sprawled. If he did, she knew a man no one else could possibly know who could mend it beautifully. To her the catastrophes of the rich were the sole providence of the poor. She was ready to exclaim louder than anyone if he did break it, and then to slip up to Miss Wheaton with the precious address. Miss Bean liked to be useful. Smiles came your way if you were useful. Otherwise, never. Stiff on her horsehair sofa, she hated the young man for being there, on the gilt chair. Why should he be there at all? She did not hate Miss Wheaton, who had been kind to her, but she would not have minded, except in humble speech, having the chair break. Some of the others concealed similar meditations deep within them, but with Miss Bean they were very close to the surface. She was so humble that one wheezing manner sufficed to her contacts with life. It was such an ostentatiously unlucky manner that, like rags, it took everyone in. Few were so wretched that they were not obliged to pity her. She had probably never before encountered, at the same time, so many natural enemies as this afternoon, but she did not notice them. She was waiting, almost breathless, for the chair to break. Everyone was finally now very still. Only Walter Levin, whose tiny annuity had enabled him to preserve and not sell a few priceless affections, grew restless. In spite of his poverty, he would have made a bolt for it if he had not so trusted Cordelia Wheaton. It was not characteristic of Miss Wheaton to keep her friends waiting, Indeed, it was with a phrase of apology that she entered. She took her stand in the uncurtained arch between the two rooms, refusing the chairs offered her. She was a mass of burdensome soft flesh. Her hand was white like molded wax. Her gentle blue eyes seemed to take reluctant command among features long since conquered, most peacefully, by alien tissue. She looked unhealthy as fat, white, small-boned women do, but there was no gross suggestion in her corpulence. It seemed rather the result of pious inertia, of a mystical and unhygienic staring into space for many years. She had apparently not pampered, but ignored her body. The flesh had achieved a bloodless and unnoticed victory. When she spoke, it was in a small, tinkling voice, 
not shy but with absent-minded cadences. Everyone paid the most profound attention. "'I have called you here, my dear friends, to say that I have come to a definite decision as to the disposal of my fortune.' She paused between phrases unembarrassed, as if merely she had found something that she loved to stare at in the distance, beyond their heterogeneous heads. "'I have destroyed my will, under which many, perhaps most, of you were beneficiaries. Some of you have long known that I have no desire to cooperate with incorporated institutions or public trust funds.' I am not in sympathy with the forms which religion takes among us. There was something breathtaking in her tacit yoking of Walter Levin's agnosticism and old Miss Bean's revivalistic tendencies, and one or two of her friends looked up at her, though they sat very still. Though I would not in any way criticize or interfere. What has become very clear to me is this. As if quite unconscious of the tense minds and bodies surrounding her, she stopped. No one quite dared to follow her glance, to see what she was looking at, there beyond them, but it could in any case have been nothing more remote physically than the lace curtains falling heavily the length of the drawing-room windows. Outlying fields of flesh shook slightly as she turned or moved, but there seemed to be no central disturbance. With rare absence of dramatic sense, she appeared not to know that the moment was cruelly psychologic for two-score human beings. At last she came back to her speech with a sigh that agitated her vast bosom. (sighs) What has become very clear to me, she resumed, is that, Any gift I can make to my friends will be of infinitely more use to them now than at the problematic future period of my death. If any one of you needs or or desires money that I have and do not either need or desire, I cannot see why I should withhold it any longer. The great and senseless burden of managing a property like mine though it is not so large at the present day as some have doubtless thought, would scarcely be a burden at all if shared among so many. I have no natural heirs, and you who are gathered here represent what I should call the natural people for me to unload my responsibilities upon. I have used my best ability in choosing— and in the distribution of my worldly goods. It is needless to say that I have reserved enough to pursue my own life in self-respect. I hope you will agree with me that self-respect does not need much, but I should not like to burden my friends with the vision of me as a beggar. She smiled softly. I purpose now today to divide what has been called my wealth among you here present. I hope no one will give me the pain, her voice had a pleading note, of disagreeing with my judgment. It would be a real pain to me. So long as the money is mine, I have 
perhaps, a right to judge. After it has ceased to be mine, my connection with it, for praise or blame, will of course utterly have ceased. Words of abstract import could not be less didactically spoken than were Miss Wheaton's. Gentleness could not go farther compatibility with dignity. Yet even old Miss Bean, who was wont periodically to ask the prayers of singing, groaning, murmuring congregations, felt resentfully that she was being preached at. The women controlled their impatience according to their several codes of manners. The men, except Walter Levin, squirmed on their seats. I am going to ask you each one to give me a few moments in my library. My lawyer is there, and together we will inform you of the sum to be transferred immediately to your possession. Anyone who wishes to consult my lawyer, Mr. Reed, more fully, can make an appointment with him today for a later time. His firm is prepared to execute the transfers and to do all necessary business with the greatest possible despatch and the least inconvenience to you. Of course, if you wish to consult your own lawyers, you are at perfect liberty to do so. But as Mr. Reed knows my affairs in detail, I recommend him to you. I have made an alphabetical list, and shall ask you to meet me in the library in that order. As I desire now only to give you information, it will not, I think, take long. I purposely selected a holiday for these informal preliminaries. The formalities shall be put through in the next days, at your convenience. Before I call for the first one on the list, may I say one thing? that I should be deeply disappointed if any one of you failed to understand my motives in doing this or refused to receive my gift. Her gaze seemed to hover round Walter Levin's head for an instant, but so vaguely that only Walter Levin himself could have known. She gave no other sign of signaling him out. I have called you together only for the sake of saving time, each one of you, I hope, knows by this time my special feeling of friendliness for him or her, knows that I do not in any way confound him with others. Many of you, of course, do not, never will, know each other, but time is very precious in our time-ridden world. I am leaving the country before long. I do not wish to delay. Miss Bean... Your name is first on the list. Will you please come up to the library with me and meet Mr. Reed? Miss Wheaton made her way slowly, a little uncertainly, through a group dazed by much swift speculation. Bessie John's husband and the man who shared his Sheraton bench got up to let her through the door. Miss Bean followed, drawing her faded skirts meticulously above her boot-tops, as though she were in a muddy street. Walter Levin's face twitched a little as he glanced sideways at Jim Huntingdon, now frowning as he sprawled. Levin was still suppressing the desire to bolt. Bessie John was crimson, but she never let her gaze wander from the ivory chessman. She did not even look at her husband. 
Nearly all of them were trying desperately to recall how many of their virtuous desires they had, in times past, permitted Miss Wheaton to become aware of. Both the mannerly and the mannerless were worried, the former lest they should have played the game of decent reticence too well, the latter lest they should have played it disgustingly not at all. Little Julie Fort, whose fitch muff had rolled under Jim Huntingdon's chair, decided after reflection that it would look better for her to pick it up and cherish its cheapness. The young giant was far too gone in some reverie of his own to help her. His lips were shaping inaudibly strange names, while his closed eyes were dizzily contemplating the detail of an expensive kit. So it went, while the room slowly emptied itself. As each descended from the library, the shadowy butler led him to the front door and saw that its black walnut panels swung noiselessly back behind him. But at last the blue November twilight had absorbed them all, all except Walter Levin, whom the butler, with a murmured word, had led to the dining-room. Walter Levin heard from the man that Miss Wheaton begged he would stay and presently dine with her, and while he waited in the ugly panelled room he heard the shuffle of chairs in the drawing-room as the servants rearranged them after the singular festivity. He could have gone back into the thinning crowd, but he did not wish to. Even after old Mrs. Williston, the last, had gone upstairs, he still clung to the official privacy of the dining-room. Only when he had heard Mr. Reed go out of the house did he lift his head and take possession of himself. Then he came out into the hall and met his hostess. At dinner Miss Wheaton looked to him very tired. The hanging lamp over the table made a single Rembrandt-esque pool of light in the biggish scene. That illumination showed up the food and dishes like a Dutch still-life. Just beyond the bright center of the pool, Miss Wheaton's face hung heavily between glow and darkness. It looked as if a cynical sculptor had clapped on handfuls of plaster and left them, in their impotence, to harden, while he went about a more beautiful business. Wan and gentle and cruelly fat, she faced her guests across the table, as sometimes not often, she had done before. He was oppressed by the weariness she did not confess, and almost immediately after dinner he left her. Some of the men, going away that afternoon, had clicked buoyant heels on the sidewalk. They had walked like men whose limbs have been washed in miraculous waters. But Walter Levin's step was a little heavier than usual as he sought his two high-perched rooms. End of section one.